Well, good morning, Garden City Church. That was a good response. Happy second Sunday of Advent. I know that a lot of us know each other, but for anybody that I haven't yet gotten to meet, <coughs> excuse me, I'm very sorry. I'm Julia Allen. I have been here at Garden City from the beginning, and my husband, Dennis, is one of the pastors here. And we live less than half a mile down the road that way with our five kids and our dog, Honey. Um, my usual role here at Garden City is co-leading our kids' ministry and writing our kids' church curriculum. So you will usually find me back that direction with all of the small, noisy, very energetic people. Um, and outside Garden City, I am also a physician assistant at a local community pediatric practice. So you could say that I spend a lot of time around kids. And honestly, I find kids to be pretty amazing people to spend time with. But I am also very, very thankful for this, um, to be in this space with you today. It's always a comfort to me to look out and to see familiar faces of those of you who've been here with us in this community for a while, um, some folks I've known for a very long time. But I also want to make sure to welcome anybody who's maybe here with us for the first time or who hasn't been here all that much. Um, we're really thankful you're here. I know churches are always supposed to say that, but we really are thankful you're here. Um, I know that it is not easy to walk into a new church. It's not a simple thing to show up in a new space with unfamiliar people. And I mean, if we're honest, a lot of us bring some hurt and some wounds and some triggers from church and church environments. So I know it's not simple to hold on to the hope of Jesus when you have some hurt. So I just wanna say thank you for having the courage to show up. Um, we're really, really glad that you're here. And our hope is that in this place, we will all feel free and safe to come exactly as we are and to enter into the presence of God together. Because this is surely not the only place where God's spirit is, but we do believe that he's here among us. And that no matter where we've come from, what we've experienced, how we bring ourselves today, our hope is that we will be able to step into the presence of God and experience the healing and the transformation that is here, that's available in the presence of Jesus, and that we can all experience that tangibly together. So, because honestly, I think we all need God with us, don't we? I think it is really cool um, that Kenny was led in a direction of, of really talking through this idea of Emmanuel, God with us, during our time of worship today, because that is very much what we're talking about today. I know that I feel pretty desperate to know, really know, that God is with us. And I wonder if any of you could identify with that. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's from Matthew 1, through 23. This morning, we are going to spend some time reading a story 
that probably most of us have heard a whole bunch of times before. It's the story of Emmanuel. It's the story of how God came to be with us. And I know that sometimes when we've heard a story over and over again, it can kind of turn into white noise. We're so familiar with it that it's just kind of going on in the background. And we know it's there, but it's familiar enough that we don't really have to pay that close attention to it because we already know how the story goes. But when Emmanuel came into the world, when he left the perfection and the beauty and the wholeness that he experienced continuously in the presence of the Father, and he came down into this messy space of humanity with people just like us, I think it's worth remembering that he came into a particular time and a particular place amongst a particular people, and he entered into a time of deep need and deep darkness into a people that were desperately in need of hope. And we're going to talk through some of that today, the circumstances of his birth and what exactly he was entering into in that time. But I have a question for us to just kind of process in the background before we begin. If Jesus entered into this time, this place, how would we tell the story? When we read Luke's gospel or Matthew's gospel, there's, there's some setup there. Matthew starts with this whole genealogy. Luke starts, starts to talk to us about the different people and the systems and the rulers in place. But what context would we offer today about the world that we are living in? Its struggles and its griefs, its brokenness and need, the lies we believe that keep us in bondage, the forces of injustice and oppression that ignore the image of God in people that he made. What things would we point to that bring us to our knees, that bring to the surface our awareness of our need? So let's, let's think of that. Let's think of what it is in our world today, what it is in our lives that stirs in us a hope for a Savior. If Jesus into, entered into your life today, flesh and blood walking alongside you, how would you tell that story? What is your need? What is your hope? Maybe even the hope that you're afraid to speak aloud. Let's hold that desire, that hope, and prepare our hearts to listen to this story and allow Emmanuel to enter in. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for the gift of your presence. We thank you that we, that we do live in a time where Emmanuel already dwells among us. God, forgive us for the ways that we neglect that presence or forget it. Um, build us up. Give us courage. Help us to sit in the presence of your grace and your mercy and be reminded that no matter how we come here today, that your presence is here, 
that you want to be with us. God, just speak your truth through the words I say today. Meet us here. We love you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. So, this is the story of the birth of a king, a messiah. But it's not exactly the story we might expect. It's not exactly the story that fits our cultural understanding of kingship, power, authority, rule, influence. It's the story, though, that God wrote for his entrance into humanity. It's the story God wrote for the birth of his son. So let's read this together from Luke 2, 1 through 7. I think it'll be on the screens and you can read it in your Bibles or on your phones or whatever you've got. And let's just consider what God might open our eyes to today through this story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Now, through the first two chapters of Luke's gospel, he is setting the scene for the entrance of Emmanuel. He's laying out the context of what's going on in the world and all its rulers and nations and powers and authorities and systems and people. And he's describing it all in a pretty straightforward, non-dramatic, just-the-facts kind of emotional way, right? To modern readers like us, we read that, and it all might just sound on the surface to not really mean much of anything. But to a first-century reader, there's so much depth and richness in what Luke is describing here. So let's try to understand it a little bit the way that an early reader of the text would have. In these first few verses that we just read, he starts right off by drawing this really stark and profound context between two rulers— two kings, that early readers of this text would have immediately recognized and understood. When he starts, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. He's highlighting one of these rulers from the outset. Now, I just read that in the NIV, but it's interesting that several translations of the Bible, they don't specify Roman They use phrases like, all the world should be registered, or a census should be taken of the entire inhabited earth. Because Caesar Augustus, he was not technically the ruler of the whole world, but he might as well have been. Because the Roman Empire in this time was so extensive and so dominant that he was the most absolute preeminent ruler and authority known by the vast majority of people in the time and place into which Jesus was born. In their book, The First Days of Jesus, the authors Andreas Kostenberger and Alexander Stewart explain it this way. Most people in the Mediterranean world would have thought of Caesar as the ruler of enough of the world to consider it all. 
this ruler of the world was busy governing his subjects and expanding the boundaries of his empire, while without his knowledge, the true and rightful ruler of the world was being born in a tiny village at the eastern end of the empire. So we have this powerful military ruler known throughout the majority of the world in his time as this man of great wealth, privilege, power, and influence. And he's exercising his power over his subjects by demanding that they engage in a census. And he's declaring a census, decreeing a census, because that's how he counts everybody and taxes everybody. He just wants their money. And there's another thing to understand about the context of this Roman emperor and the people under his rule. See, the Jewish people in this time were living essentially as exiles in their own land. They were not living as people free to follow their own religious laws and customs. They were living as people dominated and oppressed by this Roman occupying force. Caesar's rule was characterized by domination, control, oppression, injustice, and even violence. The Jewish people at that time lived with this awareness of this distant promise of God to send a savior who would bring the restoration of Israel, who would bring healing and hope to their land. But they were living in the middle of this darkness that made it really difficult to hope for that promise to be made reality. And then we've got Mary and Joseph from Nazareth. And just to say this really clearly, Nazareth was not a place anybody wanted to be from. It was this village so tiny and so unimportant that they didn't even bother to put it on a lot of maps. And so there's this glaring contrast between power and powerlessness, between fame and renown and just absolute obscurity, all in these few little verses right here. Now Mary and Joseph are making the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem to register for the census decreed by Caesar. And they have to make that journey because Bethlehem is for, is for Joseph the land of his origin. He's of the house and line of David, which means he traces his family ancestry back to King David. And King David was born in Bethlehem. And frankly, that's probably the only interesting thing about Bethlehem. So they're traveling to this place of his origin to register. And they are just a very normal young Jewish couple who are betrothed or engaged to be married. And being betrothed in this ancient Near Eastern culture is not the same as being engaged today in our Western culture. People became betrothed by a decision of their families. And it was this very elaborate process and a binding agreement that even involved a dowry, a bride price that was paid by the future groom or the groom's family to the bride's family. And a Jewish couple, as, as a couple betrothed to each other, they were expected to be faithful and committed to each other. And they were also absolutely not permitted to be sexually intimate in any way until their actual formal marriage ceremony. They were also most certainly not permitted to be sexually intimate with anyone else. And so when Luke just sort of casually writes here 
He, Joseph, went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. We just kind of gloss over that like it's simple, but that was a shocking social reality that put Mary and Joseph in a really vulnerable position. Mary being pregnant before she was married was absolutely scandalous. She would have been judged and condemned most certainly. She would have brought shame on her family and very possibly rejected by her family. And according to Jewish law, she could even have been put to death. And for Joseph, it would have brought great shame and embarrassment for him as well. And he had every right to divorce her. But we see that they are engaging in this journey together. So it seems that Joseph has decided to stay with Mary. Luke doesn't go into all these details, but if we read Matthew's gospel, we hear these stories about how an angel visited Mary and Joseph to basically explain to them what was going on, that Mary was pregnant because of an overshadowing of the Holy Spirit and that she was actually carrying the Son of God. Before Joseph got his visit from the angel, the, the Bible tells us that Joseph was this man of integrity and righteousness, and he was going to just quietly divorce her so that he wouldn't have to expose her to any more shame or danger. But then this angel comes to him with this wild story, this unbelievable news, and we know that he must have believed it, he must have trusted it, because he remains committed to Mary and chooses to enter into this daunting task of co-raising the Son of God. So they make this journey together from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And Luke tells us that while they were there, the time came for Mary to have the baby. Now, it's likely because of the census that the town was just overrun with people and that the typical accommodations for travelers were not available and were already filled. We don't know exactly where Jesus was born, but we know that Mary gave birth in a place that wasn't intended for humans. It was intended for animals. And we know that because she placed her baby in a manger, a feeding trough. I think we often think of this story, maybe it's all of our movies, as being like this, um, involving some sort of callous innkeeper. And they come and ask for a room and he's like, no, go away to the woman about ready to have a baby. But honestly, this culture was a culture that was really oriented towards hospitality and welcoming the traveler. And that's probably not exactly how this went. People who lived in Bethlehem in that time, they lived in homes that usually consisted of kind of like one big central room where the family lived all of their life together. And then most of these homes also had a side room that was specifically intended to be used as a guest room. And so that when travelers came into town, when foreigners came, when family came, they could stay in this guest room. And that's honestly probably where most of the people who came into Bethlehem for the census were staying. But most of these homes would have also had another sort of room attached that may or may not have been fully enclosed, but it was the place intended for the animals. It was where the family would bring the animals in for the night to protect them from predators and keep them warm. And so when we hear that there was no room in the guest rooms for Mary and Joseph and the baby, it's likely that Mary and Joseph were offered the best available accommodations available to them at that point in time, 
and that they were offered a space with the animals, whether that was this space that was attached to a home or a, a cave that was close by to a family's home or an open-air shelter. But what we know is that it was made for animals. And I think if we stop for a moment, we can think about the fact that Many of us grew up, I for sure grew up, with these very sanitized images of this serene scene in our minds. Silent night, holy night. In our, our church sermons and the stories we read and our pretty little nativity sets. But this was anything but pretty. It was messy. It was noisy. It was smelly and gritty and sweaty certainly very painful for Mary, probably more than a little terrifying for Mary and for Joseph. And as if bringing a baby into the world itself wasn't already overwhelming enough, imagine going through that and even having some slightest knowledge or understanding that this baby you're bringing in to the world is actually the son of God. It's kind of mind-blowing to think about. There's one other small detail here that I think is worth mentioning. Mary wrapped her baby Jesus in swaddling cloths before laying him in that manger. And I think sometimes we, again, we have these really pretty images of the Christmas story, and I think I've thought that swaddling cloths maybe were something special, and that's why the angels told the shepherds, you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger, that it was like some special identifier. But actually, swaddling cloths were just the most normal thing that Jewish women would use to wrap their babies. It was just the very culturally common thing that common people had to wrap up their babies and keep them secure and warm and safe. And so it reminds us that Jesus was born as this fragile, vulnerable infant, just like all of us, and just like all of us, he was completely dependent on his mother's care. And she cared for him, just like a normal baby, just like all the rest of us. But he was not just any regular Jewish baby, was he? A king was born, not into a palace, but into a stable. He came not into a wealthy, well-known, powerful royal family, but to two unmarried nobodies from nowhere that most respectable people probably avoided due to their situation. He was wrapped not in expensive, beautiful garments, but these simple swaddling cloths. He spent his first night not surrounded by luxury and servants, but in dirt and straw surrounded by animals. His birth wasn't announced to an entire kingdom with trumpets and fanfare, but to this group of socially outcast shepherds on a hillside by a sky full of angels. It's pretty staggering, isn't it? It's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> it's hard to wrap our minds around the magnificent humility of all of it. And this is one of those places where I think we can learn a lot from our children. I think kids have this way of 
having an easier time of grasping the concept of a newborn king who comes into the world in a manger surrounded by animals than it is for us. They hear this story and they are just able to accept that the Jesus we call Messiah and Savior and Lord is the same Jesus that was born as a baby in a barn. Why do you think that is? Do they just have a fuller and freer imagination that's unhindered, unsuppressed, that can better conceive of things that are too wonderful to be true? Could it be that they just haven't had the time and life experience yet to develop these distorted values and associations that we take on as adults? They don't see power as something that has to come with fame and fanfare or influence as something that's defined by photoshopped images and catchy slogans and brand recognition. They don't understand royalty or rule as being connected to where you're born or who your family is or what you have. The writer G.K. Chesterton wrote about this, about children's ability to hold that complexity and the value of reading to children this story of the birth of Jesus from a young age to plant these truths deep in their imaginations. I'm going to read this quote from him. He writes that anyone whose childhood has known a real Christmas has ever afterwards an association in his mind between two ideas that most of mankind must regard as remote from one another. The idea of a baby and the idea of unknown strength that sustains the stars. His instincts and imagination can still connect them. I'm going to read that once more. The idea of a baby and the idea of unknown strength that sustains the stars. Can our imaginations connect them? However difficult it might be for our minds to grasp, we do hold this to be true, that the baby born humbly in a manger in Bethlehem is also the one whose strength sustains the stars, who's the author of all creation, who's the creator of us. He is the one we call Emmanuel, God with us. The human rulers of his day, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, King Herod, they all believed they were supreme, that they held this ultimate control and authority over people and cities and nations. But right under their noses, this baby is born whose ultimate power and authority would transform the entire world and bring rescue and redemption to all of humanity. And the power contained in that baby would bring down rulers from their thrones and lift up the humble. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 
It's from the prophecy, the messianic prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. If the one who sustains the stars could be born into obscurity, I wonder why we spend so much time trying to make a name for ourselves. If the one that we call wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, came into the world almost unnoticed, why do we strive so hard to make ourselves significant? Jesus was born into the humblest surroundings, but we dream of bigger homes, better cars, finer things. Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths, but we want to put onto ourselves the right clothing and styles to make ourselves relevant. Jesus was born in this little obscure town nobody cared about, but we strive after making ourselves a space in influential places. Jesus was born to a couple whose lives looked messy and ugly, <laughs> who were judged, shamed, and pushed aside. But we try so hard to craft an image of competence and beauty and perfection. If the one who sustains the stars could be born into obscurity, why do we strive so hard after making ourselves significant? Doesn't his very name reveal the significance that he bestows on us? If he is Emmanuel, he is the God who considers us worthy of his presence. Let this Advent season be an opportunity for us to slow and quiet ourselves, to reflect and look at our own lives, at our own hearts, and ask ourselves this question. What is my need? And am I trying to meet that need through my own striving? Do I really believe that Emmanuel calls me beloved and considers me worthy of his presence? And do I really believe that a baby born in Bethlehem holds the strength to sustain the stars, to carry the burdens of my heart, to meet me, to meet all of us in our places of need and lead us out into hope and restoration. Let's pray. Emmanuel, we thank you for your presence. You are God with us. You are good to us. So, Father, we come with our need. You know what it is, God. You know the places where we are worried about having the means to provide for our families, to pay our bills, to get our kids Christmas gifts. You know the places where we're fearful about our health and well-being. God, you know the chaos in our minds. You know the ways that we struggle to even understand 
why we feel what we feel, why some days feel so hard, why we feel so overwhelmed. You know the people we love that we worry about. You know how desperately we wish we could help those we love and how powerless we feel sometimes to do it. You know our need, you know our grief, you know our fear. Emmanuel, meet us in that place. Meet us in our mess. Remind us that you love us right there, right in the middle of it, and that you won't leave us. Help us to walk through this Advent season with an awareness of your presence and your love and your power that sustains the stars. We love you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.